We're going to continue our study this morning on the noble life in a needy world. And I want us to conclude this time in the Sermon on the Mount. I said at the beginning, this is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Dr. Wayne McDill told me once, if you can't preach a great sermon, at least choose a great text. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest texts, I believe, in all of Scripture. Thank you, buddy. you the man. I was outside all day yesterday, and my voice has been gone for the past week, so that was probably not wise, but, but we're getting there. Appreciate it. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I get hydrated a little bit, and um, let's look at verses, chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 13 and 14, and then I will bring the rest of the chapter and this context to bear on the message as well. Jesus is concluding this great sermon, and I want to call this message the exceptional life of nobility. He's concluding the sermon, and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets, he says in verse 15. And he gives a warning. And then in verse 24, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And he gives another illustration there. So after we pray, we'll tie in these three illustrations that he gives us and ask the Spirit of God to show us this thing called the exceptional life of nobility. Father, your word says whatsoever things are true and just and pure and noble to think on these things. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us. And then I pray that you would empower us to live the noble life you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If there's something that frustrates from time to time every pastor who preaches and teaches the Word of God, it's, it's the sense that there, there's somebody out there who's struggling, and we all struggle from time to time, but there's somebody out there struggling simply because they're not getting it. Just not getting it. it, it the preaching and teaching the Word of God, you can try to put it as simply as you can possibly put it, and you sense that for some people you may as well be up here teaching calculus. There's, there's like three of you who are going, oh, that's easy, that's cool. But there's only about three of you that could say that. But, but, you're, but many of us are saying, that, that's just kind of, I'm not there, that's not me. And that's the way life is sometimes. Now, we need the Holy Spirit of God to do what we call illumination to help us get it, because in life, often there are things that we just don't get. How many of you have ever said of your spouse or your children, they just don't get it? They just don't get it. All right, some of you are just too cool to raise your hands right now, right? Some of you are just too scared to raise your hands. Here are some things that we, we, we may never get, we may not, never understand. I, I pulled up some of these points to ponder this week. It says, uh, here, here, are some, here are some things we don't understand, we may not get. Why do people park on driveways and yet they drive on parkways? Why are boxing rings 
square. We don't get it, right? Why is it you can tell a little boy there are 400 billion stars in the sky and he will say, wow, that's cool, and he will believe it. But you can tell the same little boy that chair has wet paint. Don't touch it. And he won't believe you. He simply won't believe you. Some, sometimes we just don't get it. We, we don't understand some things. Why is it that we recite lines at a play, but we play at a recital? Why is it that our feet smell and our noses run? <laughs> Why is it that slim chance and fat chance mean the same thing? But a wise man and a wise guy are opposites. Why is it when someone tells you to fill out a form, they really mean that you need to fill in the form? Why is there an expiration date on sour cream? Why doesn't glue stick to the inside of the bottle? I figured that one out. How do you get Teflon to stick to a pan when nothing sticks to Teflon? Why don't they make the whole airplane out of the same material that they make? You know where I'm going with this. The little black box, right. Why don't they make the whole airplane out of that, right? The little black box always survives. And if vegetarians eat vegetables, what does that say about humanitarians? Now, I can imagine the look on the disciples' faces and the faces of those who had gathered around them when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, probably a lot like a lot of our looks with this. Well, I'm not sure that that really makes sense, Jesus. Some of the looks were puzzled. Some were indifferent. But with a few, there were the proverbial light bulbs coming on. They were getting it. They were grasping it. The exceptional life of nobility is a life that gets it and it demonstrates it, as we'll see in this text, the word exceptional means uncommon, abnormal, remarkable, atypical, and out of the ordinary, which is what the New Testament church would become, as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9. You are, we saw this at the beginning of this study, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. The word holy means consecrated or set apart for God's purposes. You are a holy nation, you are God's own peculiar people that we were created to declare the praises of our Lord. And so if we are God's own special people, if we are a peculiar people, we are to live an exceptional life, a royal life, a consecrated life. That means we will not talk like everybody else talks. We will not act like everybody else acts. We will not resolve conflict the way others resolve conflict. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, we will not react as others react. We will not always dress the way others dress. We will not decide who to vote for on Tuesday the way the rest of the world is deciding who to vote for. I will not go to the polls based on uh, my favorite economic approach. And I realized back in the 90s that James Carville, who was a campaign manager for Bill Clinton, made this statement that's been famous ever since. It's the economy. Stupid, a few of you got it, right? 
And, and I want to say it, it, we are stupid if we vote the economy first. We are to vote values versus Christian citizens. And so Christians will vote kingdom values before they vote the economy. We will not pursue the same goals and express the same passions as the rest of the world. Now in this conclusion, as Jesus wraps up chapter 7 with three illustrations, He will offer no new commandments. Now many of the commandments He's already given are somewhat paradoxical. At least they went against the thinking of the Pharisees and the scribes of this day. Jesus was not so convincing in the area of you need to be more religious. They already had religion. He was convincing them you need to be real. You need to be genuine. You need to be authentic. And you need a relationship with your Creator. And so he wraps it up with no new commandments, but three illustrations of those who seem to get it. Those who grasp this exceptional life of nobility. And the first illustration tells us that, that this person who gets it, the, the one who the spiritual light bulbs sort of come on, the one who gets it, expects difficult challenges as part of it. They not only expect it, they embrace these difficult challenges that come our way in this life of nobility. So in verse 13 and 14, he tells us, this is a life that's kind of against the grain. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many on this path. And that's why we can't just be out for, for popularity and being people pleasers because most of the population is going in the wrong direction. But he says, enter the narrow road because, verse 14, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And few, the minority, Find it. Now, I realize that with God, we are the majority, but we're going to be going against the grain. The word narrow here is the Greek word phlebo, which really referred to those things that were pressed together and difficult in life. It was not easy street. It was an adventure. It was a challenge that they were embracing. I would recommend John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read the old classic because it describes the life of a believer as he works his way toward God's kingdom. He's experiencing kingdom principles in an adverse world and comes across one challenge, one obstacle, one battle after another, because when he's chosen to walk the way of Christ, he's going against the grain, against the way that everybody else wants to walk. So it is a challenge. It is a calling. Listen to these words that Paul gave to Timothy concerning the stand that he to take in, in uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. He says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. See, you, when you become a believer, you've joined an army. You've joined God's army. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So you have a new commanding officer if you're a believer. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. And so he uses athletic imagery, farming imagery, to be successful, to be at your best, to reach your potential in any of these areas. It's a difficult 
challenge, but it is an adventure that we can only embrace by the grace of God. He says, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to this gospel for which I suffer. Paul said, listen, because I'm doing what God's called me to do, now I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains. But the Word of God was not chained. He said, the Word of God was advancing because I was doing what God called me to do. So if you embrace the gospel, if you embrace the Christian life, if you've been convinced by somebody that that puts you on easy street and we've got it made in the shade from here on, you have missed the point of the gospel. The, the gospel where Jesus says, yes, you've got eternity. Yes, you have peace. Yes, you have joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. But this life is a challenge. And you have embraced the narrow way. You have decided to take the difficult road. I agree with the songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman who says, but there is still no better place on earth than the road that leads to heaven. I'd rather walk that narrow way with Jesus than be on the highway to hell without him. You know what I'm saying? I'd rather walk with Jesus and embrace the challenges that come with that, knowing that his Holy Spirit is going to empower me. As the psalmist says, with God's help, I can leap over a wall. I can face every obstacle that comes my way by his grace, in his power, with his strength. I'd rather be on that narrow road and enjoy the abundant life of Christ overflowing in me than to go with the crowd and miss out on it. Now, a lot of times we don't like that. We, we don't like that message. In fact, the reason the, the wide is the road, broad is the way that leads to destruction is because the world does want it easy. They're like, man, pastor, just give me an easy message. Just tell me all roads, whichever path I take, all roads lead to heaven, and it's going to be easy, and everything is a-okay. Now, would you really want to embrace a message like that? Would you really want to listen to a messenger like that. I know many are flocking to those kind of messages today. But imagine you were going to fly. You had won a trip to Hawaii, and you were going to fly to Hawaii. And you, get on an, you go to get on an airplane, and let's say for a moment the pilot shows up, and the pilot's just kind of got his ball cap on backwards that day. Hasn't cleaned himself up in a while. Wearing a dirty t-shirt. He's wearing his, uh, what the young people call jorts. You know what jorts are, right? Jean shorts. I've been told that they're out of style now, so I don't know what I'll do with mine. But the pilot shows up in his dirty t-shirt, his jorts, his hat on backwards, and he says, man, flying this plane's a piece of cake. We're going to have a good time. Now, you want that guy clean and crisp and sharp, and you want him to look like he knows what he's doing. But let's say this guy just says, you know, anybody can fly a 747. There's nothing to it. It's a piece of cake. I got this. I got this. I don't even need any of the navigation devices because I'll tell you, it doesn't matter what direction we go. Every plane ends up in Hawaii anyway. You would say, this guy's an idiot. He had a little too much to drink. I'm not getting on this plane. But yet when it comes to the messages that deal with eternity, people will flock to, to messengers and, and, and pastors and teachers who will say, man, this is a piece of cake. Life 
is, you've got it made in the shade. Just come this way. Life is going to be nothing but a big smile, and we're going to have a good time. And by the way, all roads lead to heaven anyway. We're all going to get there safe. And we won't call that guy a fool. We won't say he's off his rocker. We'll buy it hook, line, and sinker. Jesus said, narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way. I want a narrow-minded pilot when I fly who says there's a right way and a wrong way, and I'm going to do things the right way. And by the way, I'm prepared for those challenges that might come our way when the weather changes. We're in the Lord's army. Some of you are like, man, I'm a Christian now, and I didn't realize I was going to be under so much attack. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Do you not know your adversary is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? He says, be sober, be alert, be vigilant, because you've got an enemy now. You know why the devil attacks you because you're a believer? Listen, when you weren't a believer, he already had you. One of the greatest evidences that you're walking with Jesus, is that you are under the attack of the enemy. We should be worried when the enemy's not attacking us. When we aren't encountering spiritual warfare, when the devil's not on our case, when we don't have challenges. See, he doesn't have to bother those who he's already got. He comes against those who consider themselves the enemy of his strategies. And so expect challenges. Don't look for shortcuts. Stay in the manual, time on your knees every day, time in prayer with your family. Say, you know what, the road may be hard, but I'm embracing the challenge because I'm going to walk this narrow way with Jesus. Whatever the world says, let them laugh, let them scoff, let them persecute. There's going to come a day when I say things like marriages between, we were talking about this in in our... um, Discovering Trinity 101 this morning, when I say things like, hey, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, there's coming a time, they're already getting a taste of this in Houston, Texas, coming a time where you can be persecuted and threatened because of preaching this book. Let's preach it anyway. Let's live it anyway. Let's say, I'd rather go the narrow way and go with God's standards than give in to the ways of this world. Secondly, I want you to see that those who get it understand that This noble life exemplifies a different character. A different character. First, he deals with the character of these false prophets. These that that come and say, hey, it doesn't matter what road, broad way, narrow way, my way, your way. And he confronts these, he says, beware of these false prophets because they come to you in sheep's clothing. They come like they're one of you. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now you might want to underline that word, fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, watch their life. Don't listen to their winsome message. Watch their life. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. He goes on to say, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. In our hermeneutics classes, we teach that something is an important word if you see it repeated. And we see that word again and again and again in this text. Fruit, 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 fruit. It's all about their fruits. Don't let them wow you with their spectacular communication. He's going to 
carry this a little step further and deal with all believers, but fruit. Fruit represented character. Character. How they lived out their lives. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, I reiterate this time and time again because it is the character of Christ. It's a measurement for us to say, am I becoming more like Jesus? And it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Am I loving? Joy. Do I have joy unspeakable and full of glory? Peace. Do I have a peace that passes understanding when I lay my head on my pillow at night? Patience. Is patience being evident in my life because I'm walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh? Kindness. Goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says these false teachers won't have that. Watch their fruit. And watch the fruit of their followers. Who are they influencing? Sometimes fruit referred to their character, but sometimes it was the character of those who were following them. And he said you're going to know them by their influence, by their impact, by their fruitfulness. So be fruit inspectors. As we said last week when we were looking at Judge not lest you be judged. And how to judge righteously. You're not being legalistically judgmental when you're inspecting fruit. So be a fruit inspector. But then he kind of confronts everybody here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He's not teaching works righteousness. That if, if, if God gives you A, B, and C to do and you do this, then you're earning your way to heaven. What he's saying here is if you are being transformed from the inside out, you will begin to delight yourself in the Lord and get in on his plan and his will for your life. You will hunger for the will of God. You'll have a passion for the will of God in your life You want to do His will and not your own. But He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to you, or declare to them, I never knew you. As John Reed pointed out, he doesn't say here, Well, I knew you for a little while, and then I didn't know you. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. So in addressing everyone, he gives a reminder here. It's not about eloquent preaching. Sometimes eloquent preaching can be defined in different ways. Sometimes it's, it's intellectual substance and other times it's passion. And so you can go and you can hear a preacher and he can articulate things very eloquently And in these churches, and and by the way, I love for people to take notes. I love for people to be good students of the Word of God. I believe we're told to be good students of the Word of God. But we can be wowed by intellectualism and there be nothing real, nothing substantive there as far as authenticity. It can just just be like reading a commentary. And on the other hand, it could be the passion, not so much the eloquence, not so much the intellect, it could be the passion And in the deep south, this tends to be more of that which is desired. But you go and you hear, and if the pastor shouts loud enough, if he sweats hard enough, if he bangs a pulpit long enough, then you say, man, that's anointed preaching. And so different ones of us have different bents. Because it has intellectual appeal, man, that's anointed preaching. Or because it has passion and energy, no, that's anointed preaching. Listen, it's the Word of God that's anointed. And whether preaching is anointed or not has nothing to do with the personality of the preacher, but whether or not he's preaching this book. 
If he's preaching this book, then it's anointed because this book is anointed. If he's not preaching this book, no matter how passionate he gets, no matter how intellectual he waxes, it's not of God. It's not anointed if it's not from God's Word. But we are drawn by either intellectual appeal or or by passion and energy. He says, many will say to me on that day, many will say to me, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we preach forth the truth? Then he goes into even exorcisms. Didn't we cast out demons? Listen, demons have to flee the name of Jesus no matter who says that name. Didn't we do all these signs and wonders? Listen, I believe there should be passion and power and wisdom in the church. No doubt about it. Some of you might be like, man, if you encourage people to be more passionate and to experience more power, the church may just get carried away. And sometimes the church needs to get a little bit carried away. We need to be a little bit more free in our expression. And there certainly should be a freedom. But that's not a measure of authenticity. See, we can err on two sides here. And I know which way I would tend in my personality to err if I had to go to the extremes. It's kind of like you, you can be as straight as a gun barrel doctrinally and as empty as one spiritually on the one hand. Some of you have heard that before. Man, he's as, he's as straight as a gun barrel theologically, but man, he's as empty as one spiritually. She's as straight as a gun barrel. She's got the doctrine right. They can articulate their beliefs. They sound smart when they say it, but there's no power. They're as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. And, and so what many do when they say that is, is they go to the other extreme, which, by the way, you can be as explosive as a powder keg spiritually and is misguided as one theologically. So we need balance in this area. There are a lot of places today that are experiencing passionate and powerful encounters, but the Word of God is not being preached. And it becomes very man-centered, man-centered religion. So yes, we need the power of God. We need the Word of God. We need the things of God to direct us to a life of genuineness and authenticity. These People were putting on a show. They were experiencing power and passion, but it wasn't real. They weren't founded on real substance. And how did they know whether or not it was for real? It was character. It wasn't based on their worship experience. It was based on when they left their place of worship, how did they live? Did they love their neighbor as themselves? Did they share the gospel faithfully? When the teenagers went on dates, did they live a holy life consecrated to the Lord? Man, they they sure did clout and praise the Lord in worship, but how did they live when they left the place? He said, you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. Acts 1.8. And this is is sort of Luke's version of the the Great Commission here. Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Right? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And a lot of people will point out that word power is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. And immediately we think, you shall receive power, boom, explosion. The problem is dynamite had not been invented when that word was used here. 
It was more of a consistent power, not an explosive power. It was the power of the gospel to change lives from the inside out. It was the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the boldness to live courageously and take a stand for Jesus Christ outside of the walls of the church. It was the power of God that gave us the courage to share our faith with others and lead them to faith in Christ. So you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall what? Be my witnesses. Character. People look at your life and you become a witness for Jesus Christ. You will know them by their fruits. Fruit refers to character. So they exemplified a different character. Those who get it, their character's different. Their, their character's just different. And then number three, those who get it will endure destructive catastrophes. This is the third illustration he gives as he closes out this sermon. He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine, and does them. They get it, and getting it means more than intellectually grasping it. They put it into practice. James chapter 1 says, do not be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer of the word. If we're like a hearer of the word, it's like a man who beholds his face in a mirror. I think it's cool that he says, like a man who beholds his face in a mirror instead of a woman. You know why I think he says that? Because when men look at themselves in the mirror, they says he goes away and forgets what he looks like. A man can look in a mirror and say, whatever. Now, you know, there might be some of these guys around here that primp a little bit every time they look in the mirror, but most of us, you can tell, we don't. <laughs> we look in the mirror, most of these guys, I see some wives nodding, yeah. Most of these men around here, a man looks in the mirror and he's like, whatever. A woman looks in the mirror, she's going to fix something. Her husband can say, you're perfect, you don't need to change anything. She looks in the mirror, she doesn't see it, she's got to fix something. But James 1 says, we look in the Word of God like a man looking in a mirror and we, we see things that need to be changed in our lives and we don't change anything. But the one who obeys the Word of God, back to this illustration in verse 24, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the, whole, and the winds blew and, the, and beat on the house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, these kingdom principles, principles of noble living, a noble life, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on the house, and it fell. And then he adds this phrase, and great was its fall. Not only was... It a bad deal. It was an awful deal. It was great was its fall. Life fell apart. The family fell apart. Relationships fell apart. Things didn't work anymore. He who hears and obeys. It's been said before, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't preached to be admired. <laughs> Jesus preached it that it would be obeyed. The Palestinian desert was a dry place, obviously. It was desert, but it was vulnerable to flash floods because it was desert, because the ground wasn't moist, because it was dry and full of sand. When rains did come, it was often sudden and certain destruction that would follow. He said, a foolish man goes out and he says, man, it hadn't rained in a long time. I'm going to build my house on this sand. Here in the desert, flash floods come and just kind of wash everything away. And that sand represents worldly standards and worldly principles. Doing things the way everybody else you go to school with does them. 
doing things the way everybody else you work with does it. Trying to keep up with everything your neighbor's doing. Seeking first your own kingdom rather than kingdom of God. But he says those who seek first the kingdom, those who apply these principles that you've heard in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, starting with Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, and then being salt and light, and then learning how to practice his presence and practice prayer and praying kingdom prayers. Those who begin to apply these principles, those who allow Jesus to change them from the inside out rather than just try to change themselves from the outside in, those who apply these principles will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rains came, the sand was washed away, but because they had a solid foundation, they stood strong. The Bible is full of kingdom principles on life, on marriage, on serving like we heard about earlier in testimonies this morning, on priorities, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And when we get those priorities out of order, when we don't apply God's standards on marriage, on parenting, when we don't apply God's standards on holy living, resisting temptation, defeating the enemy, when we don't apply God's standards then we're on shaky and sandy ground. We've got to learn how to hear His voice and walk in obedience. A few years ago, uh, Tina and I had the privilege, thanks to the wonderful folks here at Trinity, to go to a wind-shaped marriage retreat. I would strongly encourage any of you and all of you, if you can ever go to a wind-shaped marriage retreat, it's not only a beautiful getaway, they treat you like royalty, (laughs) first class, and you hear some great principles. One of the little games that we played while we were at this marriage retreat during what was kind of a fun time with purpose is um, each couple gathered outside, and there was this kind of a minefield. They weren't real mines. They were just toys and other obstacles laid out in kind of a roped-off area. And one spouse had to be blindfolded, and it would have been okay if there had only been one couple going at a time, but there were all the couples doing this at the same time. One spouse had to be blindfolded while the other spouse walked them through and they had to walk from one side of this roped-off area to the other side of this roped area without stepping on any of the mines, any of the obstacles. And it was a good exercise in learning, especially for us guys, right? A good exercise in learning how to listen to your wife. but it's even more difficult sometimes to listen to our Lord. See, because we weren't just hearing our spouse's voice, we were hearing everybody else's voice. We had to ask ourselves, can I distinguish her voice from the rest of the voices? Well, can we distinguish his voice from the rest of the voices? And when we distinguish it, when we're walking, he says, you know, you need to take a step to the left. You need to turn around. You need to go a different direction. Will we be obedient to his voice? Because God has a perspective. It's like this world is a crazy maze. It's a good time of year to go to a corn maze, right? The world's a crazy maze. And God is looking down from above and he says, I see where you need to go. I created this route for you. But you've got to listen to my voice. You've got to apply these principles that I've given you because if you don't, you're going to get all mixed up. You're going to be turned around. And that person's going to be like a fool who built his house on the sand. And when the catastrophes come, and they will come, they will come. I made the mistake early in our marriage 
You hear all of these preachers talk about, you know, well, I tell you what, God's going to really use you once you go through the fire. And, And Tina and I had conversations. Well, we've been really blessed. We haven't gone through many fires, have we? Don't ever say that. Because they will come one after another, after another, after another. And I'm glad I heard all those promises. God's really going to use you after you go through the fire. Because we discovered something in the midst of it. And Tina wears an anchor on her chain, on her neck chain to this day because of we discovered in the midst of it that the anchor holds. And when your life is built on the rock and you listen to the voice of God in the midst of all the other, when the storms come and the rains come and it just keeps coming and after another and after another and you think it's going to let up and it comes again, God is faithful. And God will demonstrate His faithfulness He will help your family to grow more in love. I believe that my family, starting with me and my wife, I believe we are more in love with each other than ever before. But so many times we had to say in the midst of the storms, what does God say? What does God say? We're going to do this God's way or we're going to do this our way? How are we going to get through this? Other times we just had to ask for wisdom. And and by the way, life is still like that. I'm not going to say the storms are over. We're still in those storms but we're able to hear the sweet, small, still voice of God saying, my word is true. Trust me. Walk with me. Will you bow your heads with me?